today, we will speak on the subject, who is who? When we ask the question, who is who, it's the same as asking, who are we? Or, we are who? This is something that is very important for those of us who are studying Buddhism and practicing Dhamma. This question is a most important one for us to consider. Who is who? When we come to study this thing called Buddhism, which teaches that there is no atta, no atta, no self, no soul, no we. When we come to study Buddhism, which teaches that there is no self or soul, then who is it that comes to study Buddhism? Who is who? Who comes to study this? Who is it? that is experiencing tukkha? Who is it that is bothered by suffering? Who is it that is driven to study Buddhism by the problem of tukkha? We must look at this, and so today we will consider the question, who is who? All of you have come to Suan Mok, and all of you in coming here have some kind of feeling or belief in an I, in a me, in some sort of self. Each of you in coming here comes with this feeling or concept of I or of a self. And when you come here, you are coming here to study Buddhism, which means you are coming here to study the matter of not-self or anatta. You're coming here to study the, the truth of no I, no me, no mind, no we. This is something quite amusing, which you have, to, you have to give a lot of attention to. How is it that you come here with a feeling of self, some kind of conception of I or me? You come here like that in order to study this topic or this truth of not-self, of no I. The I comes here to study not-I. It may sound a bit crazy even, a bit strange. But here, we, we look at this situation and realize that this I or self or soul or Atman or ego 
whatever kind of entity we identify with as I, as me, we see that these things are just thoughts. They're just a product of mental conditioning. And we see that in these thoughts or ideas or beliefs or feelings that there is no reality. These are purely illusions, just symptoms of our inability to see things as they are. And so then we begin to look at the situation and realize that there is no I and no self, that all there is is just one thing. There is just one thing, and this is the mind, the jitta, the mind, or something. And so this is what we come to explore. We're not here to explore the self. We're here to understand the mind. Buddhism is the religion which teaches anatta, not self, not soul. This sets it apart from all the other religions because all the other religions assert that there is some self, some soul, some atta or atman. Buddhism teaches that there is no such thing that these are just concepts and ideas created by the mind that have no true reality. In Buddhism, there is just the reality of mind, of the mind, of jitta. There is the jitta, and it is a strange thing about this jitta is that it is able to think in deluded ways. And so this jitta thinks up this idea of a self or soul. It creates the concept of I and believes in it. It creates this illusion and, and holds that the illusion is true. This is how the jito works ignorantly. A prime example of this is the Western philosopher Descartes, who uttered the famous words cogito ergo sum, cogito ergo sum, which are usually translated I think, therefore I am. Because there is thinking, there must be some I which exists. This is a rash assumption. The jitta thinks, and it thinks often in deluded ways, and gives rise to this illusion of an self or soul, of the I. But just because this thinking exists doesn't prove in any way that that self or I has any true reality. And so this is what's happening, this jitta, the mind, 
thinks in certain ways and comes up with this idea of a self. And through ignorance, the jita clings to this idea and attaches to it as something that is true. When we say that there is only the jita, the mind or consciousness, some of you may ask, well, what about the body? Isn't there some body which exists besides the mind? Or isn't there some body which might be the self? The body really doesn't have much meaning. The body is nothing but the office where the mind works. The body is just a tool of the jita. It is, right, it is not important or meaningful of itself. And it is really no problem at all. So it is, it is the jita where there is meaning. It is the jita that we are concerned with. Some of you who have studied Buddhism before, or those of you who have been here throughout this retreat, have, have heard that there are, the mind can be divided into four activities. There is Vetana, the feelings, Sanya, the perceptions, Sankara, the thinking, and Vijnana, the sense knowing. Many of you have heard about this before. But don't be confused and think that there are four minds, that there are four different consciousnesses or jitas. There is still only one jita, but the jita can function in these, in at least these four different ways. It's one jita, but it can display a variety of symptoms. Sometimes this one jita will display the symptoms of feelings, of reacting to sense experience as either liking, disliking, or uncertainty. Other times, the jita will perform the function of perceiving, of noting and distinguishing certain marks and signs of the sense experience. Other times, the jita will perform the function of thinking, which we call sankhara. And then there is also the function of clearly knowing the sense objects, the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts. These are four activities or functions of the mind. But in the center of all this, there is just one mind. There is just the jitta. The jitta has a variety of functions which it can perform, but there is only one jitta. Before we go further, we need to point out that this thing, the jitta, the mind or consciousness, 
is nothing but an element of nature. The jitta is only a natural element. In the language of the Buddha, we call this the vijnana datu, the, the element which is aware, the element that knows. This is the mind, the jitta, just an element which occurs naturally. It, it arises naturally through nature. The thing about this this element which knows, which is aware, which is sensitive, which perceives. This element depends on the body, on physical elements, in order for this knowing, for this awareness to take place. What this means is that this vijnana element is able to function only using the medium of the eyes, ears, tongue, or nose, tongue, body, and mind. Using these various physical media, the jitta or vijnana element performs the various functions of awareness and knowing and feeling and sensitivity. Originally, this vijnana element, the consciousness element, or jitta, was blank. But then as various sense objects made contact with it through the various sense doors of the ears, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, when these sense objects come in and make contact with the jitta, then the jitta is no longer blank, but the process of conditioning has been started. These sense objects touch off a series of conditionings, and then the, the mind is no longer blank. It, is, it begins to think, it begins to condition, various ideas in thoughts, and it starts to think about this and that and over there and all kinds of things. It has thoughts such as I exist or I am. The thought that I experience tukkha, I suffer. The, experience, the thought I don't want to experience dukkha. I don't want to suffer. I want to study Buddhism. I want to practice the Dhamma in order to eliminate dukkha. I want to practice Dhamma to be free of suffering. I am practicing Dhamma now. I am receiving the benefits of practicing Dhamma. I, I have benefited from practicing Dhamma. All these kind of thoughts are conditioned in the jitta through the, the contact of the sense objects. But this jitta is nothing but 
a natural element which can function only through the media, the, through the senses. So this, this jita is something very, very difficult to talk about and explain because this one thing can change in all these different ways. It can be this way and then change to this way and change that way. It's constantly changing, performing a variety of functions and assuming different forms. This is very, very difficult to explain. So we'll try to use a metaphor to, or a simile, to explain this. Although the jita itself is something immaterial, something mental, we will use a physical example. We'll compare it with something physical, which you can understand quite clearly, and then take that physical thing and compare it with the mind. And this will help us to explain what the jita is like. We'll use the simile of a lump of glass or of crystal. A piece of crystal, a solid piece of crystal is very, very clear. It has no color whatsoever. It is absolutely clear. Now if you take this piece of crystal and shine a red light on it, then the crystal becomes red. If you shine a yellow light on the crystal, it becomes yellow. Shine a, a green light on it, it becomes green. A blue light and the crystal is blue. A purple light and the crystal is purple. Dozens or hundreds of different colors and shades of colors can be shown upon this crystal. And the crystal is always changing depending on that color. This is a simile for the, for the jita. Or if you like, we can use the example of a pair of glasses or sunglasses. If you put on a pair of glasses, when the lenses are red, you see the whole world as red. When the lenses are blue, you see the whole world as blue or yellow, green, chartreuse, magenta, and all the tens and hundreds of different colors and hues and tints. The jita is like that. Just one jita, but depending on the color of light shined up, shown upon it, it changes. With the jita, the things that have this, this influence upon it are called the arom in Thai or in Pali the aramana, which basically means the sense object. The various sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts, which 
shine upon the jitta, which make contact with the jitta, and then condition it, condition the jitta in this way or that way or this way, depending on that that sense object, that aramana. This is a metaphor to help you understand how it is that this one single jitta, one single jitta, can be always changing and displaying all these different symptoms, performing this variety of, of functions. Many, many different possibilities that the jitta may assume, but fundamentally, there is one single jitta. Hopefully this, this simile will help you to understand what we mean. As we mentioned earlier, this one mind was originally blank, but then this thing, the aramana, which I have translated sense objects, come in and set off a process of conditioning, which is similar to the light shining upon the crystal. So it is, are these, these aramana, these external objects which come in and make contact with the mind, which, which touch off this conditioning. This is a very important point to understand, if you are to understand how it is that the mind assumes all these different forms and functions. So we'd like to explain this word aramana more carefully. Aramana is the, in the language of the Buddha, the Pali language. In Thai, it is shortened to arom, and it is generally translated sense object. But this word sense object probably has too narrow a meaning and doesn't quite give the, the full meaning of the word the Buddha used, which is aramana. This word aramana means something which is grabbed. The aramana are things which the mind grasps, grasps, grasps onto, clutches at, or we can even say snatches. The aramana are things which the mind goes out and grabs and snatches. This is the full meaning of aramana or arom, which is not quite conveyed by the word sense object. But when we're talking about the sense objects, we're talking about these things which the mind snatches. It clutches at and grabs them. So then when the mind snatches one of these aramana, then that touches off, that begins a conditioning of the mind. The mind is conditioned depending on how it reacts to whichever aramana has been snatched. 
Então, this is very, very important. Please understand the meaning of this word, aramana, and understand how the mind's interaction with the aramana touches off all this conditioning of the mind. These aramana are quite, quite dangerous. Let's look at a newborn infant to, to get an idea how this process works. The infant that has just been born has just appeared into the so-called world out of its mother's womb. At first, if the sense organs, the sensory apparatus, visual, oral, etc., is not functioning, then the jita of that infant will be blank. The, the infant's mind will be blank because there is no sense stimuli, sense data coming into the mind. But once the sense organs begin to function, then the mind is no longer blank. For example, when the infant is sucking at its mother's breast, drinking milk from its mother's breast, then there is the, the taste sensations on the tongue using through this one sense door of the tongue, there come in these various sensations. And these are interpreted as pleasing, as delicious. So this sense object of the mother's milk comes in and conditions the feeling of deliciousness, of pleasantness in the mind. The mind has already snatched away that sense object, and then the process of conditioning begins, and there is this feeling of a sense object, or of deliciousness. And this will further condition the, the thought or feeling of an I that experiences that deliciousness. I am delighted, I am pleased by this deliciousness. And so here is this arising of the I. It's interesting to see that this thought or feeling of an I occurs after the sensory contact. First the mind snatches away that aramana, in this case the taste of the milk. And then only later does the conception of an I or self or soul arise as a latter part of the conditioning. The same kind of process will happen when the infant is hugged and cuddled in its mother's arms or father's or brother's or sister's or whatever. There is this touch sensation and the infant's mind will snatch that, that aramana and that will touch off this process of conditioning. And the same kind of things will occur with the eyes. 
especially the way people like to dangle beautiful objects in front of a baby's face to stimulate it. And so all these colorful and interesting shapes will be snatched by the baby's jitta. And the same happens with sounds and smells and even thoughts. So the originally blank mind of the infant is conditioned in this way by this snatching of these sense objects. And then the mind reacts begins to be pleased by certain objects or displeased by others. And this gives rise to the, the feeling of an I. I am pleased. I am displeased. I like. I dislike. And this, this is the root cause of all the problems experienced by the jitta. When these, when the untrained mind of the infant gets into this habit of snatching away at aramana, and then like falling into the trap of liking and disliking, then there arises this this thought of an I, these conceptions and illusions of some self, and this is where all the problems of the jitta begin. So this, this shows how these, these sense objects, these aramana, shows how dangerous they are because they have this power to influence the mind. And so the mind, through the influence of the aramana, is always changing this way, that way, this way, that way in hundreds or thousands of different ways. One jita manifesting all these different forms and activities and shapes under the influence of the conditioning of the aramana. This shows the power and danger of the aramana, their ability to condition the mind in this very powerful way, which gives rise to the I, which is the, the source of selfishness and all the other problems experienced by the human jitta. So through the influence of the aramana, this thought and conception or illusion of a self or I arises. And as this arises more and more, it becomes stronger, it becomes more, more attached to, the mind clutches to this illusion more and more, to the point where this, this concept of an I is so strong that it gives rise to its opposite, the concept of some kind of enemy. And so the, the mind is caught up in this eternal conflict of I and my enemy. This, this is the terrible influence of the Aramana. As the infant grows, as the sense organs develop, 
more and more aramana make contact with the jita. The jita snatches up more and more of these aramana. And so that original state of blankness is long gone. And the mind is caught up more and more in this problem, this process of conditioning. This, this conditioning that is touched off by the aramana grows and grows. Patterns develop. Tendencies and habits become set. And so by the time the infant becomes a teenager or a young adult, all these, these patterns of conditioning are very firmly established. They're very, very strong and have great control over the mind. So at this stage in life, the stage of, say, a young adult, the sensory apparatus has been highly developed in this one way. And so through this, the senses, the mind is always clutching at things, and it has cluttered itself up with all these aramana that it has snatched up. And so we have the, the, we have a certain tendencies reoccurring constantly. One tendency is that the mind will snatch up an object and will be pleased with it, pleased or satisfied by that object. This will condition the reaction of the mind trying to rake in, to pull in, to get more and more of that aramana, more of that sense experience. This is one kind of conditioning of the mind. It is called in Pali, Lopa, or Raka, greed, or lust. It is this, this kind of rake in, to gather in, to get, and pile up. All these pleasing aramana. The second type of tendency which develops in the mind, we can call tosa. Tosa is when the object, the aramana, is somehow unpleasing, displeasing, or unsatisfying. And so the mind has, will have the tendency to want to get rid of that, to knock it away, to get angry at it, to want to destroy it. And so we have the, what we can call tosa, ill will, or gota, anger. This is the second type of tendency which is conditioned in the mind. The third type of tendency is related to sense objects which do not have an immediate influence on the mind, meaning they neither please or displease the mind. For some reason, the mind doesn't get caught up in either of these tendencies of liking or disliking. But the mind is so addicted, this one jita is so addicted to these tendencies of, of pulling in or knocking away, that it's very confused by these 
objects which neither please nor displease. The jita is knocked off balance and doesn't know what to do. So instead of trying to pull in or push away, it, it runs in circles. It runs in very confused circles around that sense experience. And this is called in Pali, moha, delusion, confusion. So these are the three primary tendencies of conditioning which develop in the mind. These three kinds of conditioning are touched off by the sense object, the aramana. And this develops and is strengthened as the the human being grows from an infant to a young adult and older and gets more set in these ways, gets more locked into these patterns of conditioning. If you're beginning to understand this, you'll see how dangerous this whole situation is, how the mind is enslaved to all this, and how it gets caught up more and more into this addiction to this illusion of an I, of a self. Because all this conditioning of the mind is always bringing up these thoughts of an I, the I who likes, the I who dislikes, or the I who is confused. And this I grows and grows until it creates enemies. This illusion of an I creates the illusion of enemies. And then the jita has gotten itself very much buried into not knowing or ignorance. So it's caught up in this, this process of, of ignorance. This ignorance, because the mind doesn't understand things the way they are, this not knowing or ignorance allows these tendencies to develop. Remember back with the infant's mind that is blank. It is blank, that means it is in a state of not knowing. And so this conditioning, these three types of conditioning that we just described, develop. And these we can call the gilesa, the defilements. These are dirty, impure activities of the mind. They arise because there is no poti, Poti is enlightenment wisdom. It is direct seeing into the true nature of things. When there is no poti, the gilesa develop. Because at the beginning of this whole mess, there was no poti available, and all this defiled conditioning arose. So now we come to the point where we must discuss one very, very important word. In Pali, this word is upadana, clinging in grasping, or we can use the single word attachment. We'll discuss this word because you must be very, very careful to understand it properly. There is often much confusion about the proper meaning, the correct meaning of the word attachment. Many people think that love is a kind of attachment, 
and then assume that to not love is detachment. To love is attachment and not love is detachment. This is a very common assumption, but it is incorrect. To detach is really just another form of attachment. It's a kind of negative attachment. Or we could say the mind attaches to something in order that it can detach. Because generally this detachment is just some kind of, is caught up in that pushing away. What most people think of as attachment is this pulling in or is related to this pulling in and detachment is some kind of pushing away. So many people get some very confused ideas about Dhamma practice and think they must go around pushing things away. This is, this is foolish and leads to just as many problems as attachment. Let's go back to these three kinds of conditioning of the mind we mentioned. There is the pulling in. And this gives rise to the positive kind of attachment. And then there's the second kind, the pushing away, which conditions what many people call detachment, which is just some sort of negative attachment. And then for those uncertain, that uncertain reaction to some objects that leads to confusion, to the running around in doubt regarding some sense experience. This leads to a, a confused kind of attachment, attachment wherein the jitta is all stirred up and confused. This is attachment or grasping and clinging. Detachment is just a form of attachment. This attachment is sent essentially when the jitta clings to something as I or mine. It, it has this egoistic identification with something which it wants to get or get rid of, or about which it is confused and uncertain. Attachment is the cause of tukka. Tukka can only arise when there is attachment. When there are any of these kinds of attachment, then the mind is conditioned in all sorts of different ways. Or we can say that these various kinds of defilement which we've, we've described condition the mind in hundreds and thousands of different ways. The jitta is turning all sorts of colors. And then the, the ignorant jitta goes and attaches to all these different colors. I am red, I am blue, I am yellow. It attaches to this pulling in, pushing away, or confused running around in circles. First these attachments or these defilements arise and we can categorize them all as craving. The Buddha used the word tanha 
and tanha conditions upadana or attachment this this grasping at things as I or mine once attachment arises it's inevitable that the mind will experience chukka attachment inevitably causes chukka so through all this attachment all this I and me and mine chukka is conditioned so if you are interested in this problem of tuka, then you will now see how absolutely important it is to have a correct understanding of what we mean by attachment. If you do not understand attachment properly, then you will not be in a position to deal with attachment, and therefore you will have very little success at dealing with the problem of tuka. So please understand Please try to understand this word attachment or upadana correctly. So everything that's been talked about so far, you'll be beginning to see is just this one mind. Everything is just the one mind functioning in this way or that way, conditioning in this way or that way. We're talking about nothing but the one mind. The one mind receives the aramana or snatches the aramana and this conditions the vedana or feeling of liking, disliking and uncertainty. The vedana conditions danha or craving, craving in the form of trying to pull in, trying to push away or running around in confusion. Danha conditions upadana, attachment, clutching and clinging at things as I or mine. It's the one mind that receives the sense object. The one mind feels liking and disliking. The one mind craves. The one mind attaches. And it is the one mind that must bear, bear this heavy burden of dukkha. Once the one mind attaches, then it must accept the weight and burden of dukkha. It is inevitable. But you'll see that all of this is just the one mind. All these different things, all this conditioning is just the one mind. So this is how the one mind is transformed or is conditioned in the way of tukka, in the way that ends in tukka. As soon as the one mind gets caught up in attachment, it must bear the, the burden, it must suffer the penalty of tukka. No one decides this. It's not a choice. It's just the inevitable result of this this conditioning of the one mind. All this happens because of the absence of wisdom, because of avicca, ignorance or stupidity. Because the mind is foolish, because this one mind doesn't understand the way things operate, 
it gets caught up in this process of conditioning and suffers tukkah. But there's a way out. The way out is the path of poti, of enlightenment wisdom, of seeing things as they really are. This is the path of poti. Poti is just that same one mind. It's just the, uh, the single mind. As the mind experiences tukkah over and over again, as the mind attaches and then is burnt, attaches and is penalized, attaches and suffers, as this tukkah happens over and over again, the mind, the one mind, begins to be aware of this problem of tukkha. The one mind begins to see this tukkha as it really is and sees how onerous, how disgusting, how useless it is. And in this way there begins to arise wisdom. The wisdom that there is this problem which we call tukkha. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of the path of poti. The experience of tukkha conditions, begins to condition the wisdom that sees this tukkha. Once the one mind begins to, to develop this wisdom that there is the problem of tukkha, then the one mind begins to examine the problem and look for its cause. How does this tukkha arise? What conditions this tukkha? And in this way, wisdom grows. The path of poti develops even further into trying to understand the cause of the problem. And then as the one mind examines the cause, it will realize that there is the possibility of being free of this problem. There is the problem and its opposite. The opposite is the end, the solution to that problem. So wisdom develops even further. This one mind develops further to the point that it understands that there, there is a possibility of ending dukkha. And then understanding that there is a cause to dukkha, it realizes there must be a cause for the end of dukkha. And so the one mind explores and experiments until it finds a way to eliminate dukkha. So this is how the one mind, the same one mind that experienced all those feelings and attachments and craving and dukkha, how this same mind then develops in wisdom. The experience of tukkha begins to cause the arising of wisdom. Wisdom develops into understanding the cause of tukkha. The same one mind is beginning to understand this cause, begins to see that there is an end to tukkha, and then learns the way of living, the way of practice that eliminates tukkha. It's the same one mind that experiences all these different things, the same one mind that performs all these different activities and displays these very, very 
many symptoms. It's the one mind, either in intuka or in poti, in wisdom. Through understanding these various workings of the one mind, then you will begin to to see the importance of understanding how all these things work and how this knowledge can liberate you. Generally, the human mind remains caught up in the, the same old patterns of conditioning which we discussed earlier, those of pulling in, pushing away, and circling round in confusion. The, human, the ordinary human mind is generally not capable of breaking out of this cycle alone. But somehow, it is within the nature of the evolution of the human mind that there arise beings who we call the Buddha, or we call Buddhas, beings of the, the type or nature of a Buddha. A Buddha has a mind that is able to develop in the path of wisdom or poti on its own. The Buddha's mind evolves onto this very, very high level to the point where it fully realizes these four truths. It has the Buddha's mind penetrates fully into the truths of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the way of living that leads to the end of dukkha. And then a Buddha can teach this knowledge and other minds can begin to receive this explanation from the Buddha, either directly from the Buddha, from a Buddha, or indirectly through a disciple someone else who has heard the teaching and been able to understand it well enough to pass it on. And so, the ordinary sentient being, the mind, the one mind of an ordinary being can receive this information and begin to process it. And if the mind is able to begin to understand this information correctly, if it hears it often enough, if it is able to think about it clearly enough, and somehow begin to take the first step of experimenting and seeing if this knowledge is actually true, then that knowledge can be the seeds of liberation for that mind. And so we can talk about the Buddha planting the seeds of poti of wisdom. We can talk about what we're doing here as we are planting the seeds of poti. Right now, we are planting the seeds of wisdom. But actually, if we use the word we, we're talking quite stupidly. To say we are planting the seeds of wisdom is incorrect and foolish. What's happening is it's just the one mind. The one mind is planting the seeds of wisdom. The one mind is growing in the understanding of tukkha, 
the cause of tukkah, the end of tukkah, and the path that leads to the end of tukkah. There's no we. There's just the one mind developing on the path of poti. So you see that everything that's been said today has to do with the ultimate truth of the one mind. This is all we're talking about, the ultimate truth of the one mind. The one mind receives the sense objects, reacts to them in forms of liking and disliking. Then there arises the defilements of greed or anger or confusion. This causes attachment, the one mind attaches, and then the one mind is burdened with this, this, this problem of tukha, this, this burden which weighs down and causes and makes life difficult to live. This is just the one mind and the conditioning of the one mind. But if we truly begin to understand the truth of the one mind, we see how this tukha itself begins to condition poti or wisdom. And then so the mind begins to develop in wisdom. The one mind grows in wisdom. This is all the working of the one mind. It's just one mind. Now most people will see this thing that we would call defilement or in Pali, kilesa, which is the light, the trying to pull in the greed, the pushing away, the anger, and the delusion and confusion. These defilements are seen as opposed to what we call wisdom or to poti. But those who really understand the mind will see that the defilements, greed, anger, and confusion, are the one mind. And we'll see that wisdom, poti, the knowledge and understanding of the way things truly are, this is also the one mind. If you understand this, then you see that the defilements and wisdom are the same thing just the one mind. The defilements in wisdom are the one thing. Now listen carefully and understand this properly. Sometimes there are people with very childish understandings of things who listen incompletely and go away with half-baked ideas. Or they start saying, oh, what this guy up there is crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But if you're really interested in the way the mind works, then you'll see that defilement and enlightenment is the same thing. The way things are in this world, if somebody says this, they're criticized. As soon as somebody says such a deep truth as 
defilement enlighten, and enlightenment are the same thing, then they're criticized from all around. There are all sorts of people ready to jump on this kind of statement. And so in the past, when we have said things like this, we are criticized. But we don't care about the criticisms. We're concerned with truth. And the truth is that there's just the one mind. Defilement and enlightenment are the same thing. The one mind. So this is why we've been talking about this ultimate truth of the one mind. You may understand that the words the one mind and the words the same mind are somewhat different. But really the same mind is just that one mind. So what we're talking about here is the one mind. When we say that defilement and enlightenment are the same thing, defilement is just a product of the mind, and enlightenment is just a product of the sa that same mind. Defilement is nothing but a conditioning of the mind. And wisdom is just a conditioning of the mind. These are just things that arise out of the one mind. Both, both defilement and wisdom are just products of the one mind. They're just sankhara, conditioned things. Both defilement, defilement is a conditioned thing, and wisdom is a conditioned thing. And so we say they're the same thing, arising out of the one mind. And we have to be careful when we talk in this way, and you will as well. If you go and talk about this to somebody out on the street who doesn't have any understanding of the workings of the mind, They'll accuse you of speaking incorrectly, or they'll say you don't know what you're talking about, or they may even go so far as to say you're crazy. But what we're talking about here, what is being talked about, is the one mind. And the developing, developing, developing of the mind to a state of non-attachment. We're talking about such a refined state of non-attachment that there is not even, that there is no attachment to even defilement, nor is there any attachment to wisdom. There is no attachment whatsoever. And we call this the non-attached mind. Remember, we're not saying the detached mind because detachment is just another kind of attachment. But non-attachment, the non-attached mind, this is the final goal of Buddhism. This is the most profound truth 
of the one mind, the non-attached mind, the mind that is not caught up in any concepts or feelings of I or mine. This is the ultimate truth of the one mind. This is simply a matter of the one mind. Defilement is the one mind. Wisdom is the one mind. Defilement is void and wisdom is void because the one mind is void. It is empty of any self or soul, empty of I and mind. Defilement is simply datata, suchness, the state of being thus. Wisdom is simply datata, suchness, the state of being such. The one mind is void, is datata. We'd like to give you a bird's eye view of this entire process from the very beginning to the end. We'll take an overview of the whole thing so that you'll understand the, what it all involves. We can summarize this as saying, from void to busy, and from busy to void. In Thai, it's very nice, it comes, it's from Wang to Wun, and from Wun to Wang, from void to busy and then from busy to void. The one mind from void to busy and then from bu busy to void. Remember the infant. Remember the, the embryo in the mother's uterus, the fetus in the womb, the mind of that fetus is wang, is void. In that mind there are no thoughts or feelings of I or mind. This is the void. But then through the sensory, the, the functioning of the sensory apparatus, then there is conditioned defilement. Defilement conditions attachment. And then there is tukka. So the one mind goes from the state of void to the state of tukka, of the mind that is busy, agitated, confused. This is wun, the mind that is busy and complicated and stirred up. The one mind goes from void to busy. But this state of busyness is tukha. And then the mind begins to learn and grow in poti, 
in enlightenment wisdom. And this poti develops further and further. And so the one mind moves from the state of busyness, of busy, to the development of wisdom, moves to the state of void. And so we've got this, this process from void to busy, from busy to void. Or the one mind goes from void to void. Now be careful about these two kinds of void. In the Zen tradition, they talk about discovering the original face. Discovering the original face. It's talking about that void mind before the starting of all the conditioning. This is, this is true, but in a way it's not completely true. Because if we talk about discovering the original face, that voidness of the original face, of the mind before all the conditioning and tukka and attachment started, that void is not the same as the, the final void. This first kind of void, the mind of an infant, that void is a void that can be conditioned. It's the void that can turn into busyness. That's one kind of void. But this other void is, not, is a void that is void forever. It is a voidness that is always empty of eye and mind. It can no longer, this voidness will never get caught up in the conditioning. And no dukkha will befall the mind that has realized this final void. So we go from one kind of void, the void of the infant's mind, or the fetus's mind, to the void of the enlightened being. Both kinds of void are absent and empty of any thoughts or feelings of I and mind. But the first kind of void can get caught up in the conditioning and caught up in attachment in tukkha. But the latter kind of void, the final void of the enlightened being, of the enlightened jitta, is the kind of void that will never be conditioned again, that cannot attach or detach ever again, and is completely free of tukkha. The one mind goes from void to busy, from busy to void, or we can just say from void to void, from emptiness of I and mind to complete and permanent emptiness of I and mind. This is the ultimate truth of the one mind. So from void to busy, from busy to void, 
or we can just say from void to void. To get from void to void involves a training of the one mind. The one mind must be trained and developed. We described this, we described this training yesterday through samadhi, concentration, and panya, wisdom. The mind is developed from void to void. Or we can use the word samatha, tranquility, and vipassana, insight, which mean basically the same thing as, as concentration and wisdom. Through tranquility and insight, the mind is trained. The mind is developed from void to void. We talked about this quite a bit yesterday. Now I'd like to, what we've just said is a deep truth, but we're going to hit you with something even more profound than that. There is something to talk about from void to busy and from busy to void is still speaking what is relative truth. So listen very, very carefully. Give the following words your undivided attention so that you do not confuse them. Don't make a mess of this very profound truth which we're going to tell you. <clears throat> when we say void, and busy, or void and not void. People generally see these as opposites. We want to tell you that void and not void are void. <laughs> void and not void are void. This first voidness is void and not void is void. Void is empty of any I or mind, any self or soul. And what we call not void or busy is also empty of any I or mind. There is nothing in that busyness that you can call a self or a soul. Void is void and not void is void. Void and not void are void. This is a very profound truth. This is ultimate truth. This is, this is as deep as you can go. Void is void and not void is void. In all these things we've been talking about today, the infant's mind is empty of any I or mine, any self or soul. There's nothing in there that can be called a self or a soul. And as the feelings arise and the defilements, these defilements are all void. The one mind is void. Whether it is void or busy, sometimes we say the one mind is void, sometimes we say it is busy. But in the deepest reality, it is always void. 
There is, not, there is never anything about the one mind which is a self or a soul. The defilements are void. Attachment is void. Even this, this attaching to things as I and mind is empty of any self or soul, any atta or atman. Tuka, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, is void. Wisdom is void. And the void is void. The voidness of the fetus and the voidness of the enlightened being are void, are empty of I and mind. There is nothing in there that is a self, a soul, an atta, or an atman. The one mind is void. It's always void. There is nothing but the void mind. This is the ultimate truth. Everything that we talk about in Buddhism is void. When we talk about the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, they're all void. The Buddha is void. The Dhamma is void. The Sangha is void. There's nothing about these triple gems which are self or soul. When we talk about samadhi, concentration, it is void. Wisdom is void. Tranquility is void. Insight is void. Morality is void. All this training of the one mind, this development of the one mind is void. The one mind is essentially void. Whether it is void or busy, it is void. I hope you've been listening carefully and that you don't confuse this. Because if you, if you confuse this point and don't understand it properly, you can cause yourself problems. So understand what you are being told in the correct way. And then you'll be able to use this knowledge to realize voidness. The mind, when, when a mind realizes this essential voidness of everything, we say that that is tathagata. The being who is known as the Buddha referred to himself as the tathagata, which means one who has entered into the void, one who has attained or realized the void. The one mind can be tathagata, can realize the void, the utter emptiness of self or soul. This is the state of being such. This is the state of being thus. The void is thus. It is this state of being just that. This is Tathata. And Tathagata is the, the mind that has realized the the Tathata of the void. Please understand this. Everything from defilement through wisdom, from void to busy, 
and from busy to void. All of it is purely void. So everything is void. Even the highest thing in Buddhism, which is Nibbana, is void. Everything is void. The things which are conditioned, the Sankhara, and things which are not conditioned, which are Visankhara. Whether things are conditioned or not conditioned, they are all void. Ignorance is void. Enlightenment is void. Everything is empty of self and soul. You cannot find anything that can legitimately be called a self or a soul. There is nothing which can be attached to. It is all just void. So it's all void. It's all a matter of this one mind, the same mind. The same mind gets caught up in defilement. The same mind realizes voidness. That mind is essentially void, is always void. That defilement is void and that enlightenment is void. So we talk about we must do this, we must do that. We must do this practice, we must realize the void. But really talking like this is still stupid. Still talking about we and I and is still caught up in attachment. To speak properly, we have to say that we is the one mind. We is that same mind. It is the mind which must be trained. The mind must train itself. The mind must develop. The mind must realize voidness. It is that mind that is stupid, that is foolish, that is caught up in ignorance and attaches and brings down tukka upon it. It is the same mind which develops and trains and realizes voidness, realizes Nibbana. It's the same mind and it all is all essentially void. So sometimes we may use the word we to help the, for people who have never heard such this kind of talk. But to use the word we is still to not understand. It is best to say the one mind, the same mind, trains and realizes voidness. Because that same mind is void, always. It is eternally void. Even the illusion of not void, the illusion of attachment, all of that is still void. The one mind is always void. And so we have to be careful about saying we. But those of you who have heard this saying, self is the refuge of self, may wonder, is this true? It is true. Self is the refuge of self. This means that the one mind must depend upon the one mind. The one mind cannot go and depend on anything else. The one mind must depend on 
the one mind. It is the one mind that gets caught up in attachment in dukkha. It is the one mind that begins to understand that dukkha, understand the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the way of living to realize the end of dukkha, to realize the void. It's the same mind, and that same mind must find its refuge in the same mind. There is no other refuge. So to say the self is the refuge of self, that self is void. Both selves are void. It's just a way of talking. There is no reality there is of any self or soul or I or mind because it is merely just the one mind. The one mind takes refuge in the one mind. So you've heard this word, the self, over and over again. And we keep saying that there is no self. We keep talking about anatta. But then you hear something like, the self is the refuge of self. To help you understand what we're talking about, we'll point out three different kinds of self. When we use the word self, it has three, it can have three different meanings. So we'll go through these three meanings of self or of soul so you can see exactly what we're talking about. The first kind of self is the ignorant feeling that arises in the mind. It is the ignorant illusion that there is some kind of permanent entity, some kind of eternal person or soul or atta or atman. This ignorant feeling in the mind is the first kind of self. The second kind of self is the real self, the genuine true self, which is that there is no self. The second kind of self is the realization that there is no reality to this word, the self. The word, the self, does not point to anything that actually exists. This is the second meaning, the real meaning of self. The third meaning of self is the kind of self that can be used to eliminate tukkha. When we talk about self is the refuge of self, we're talking about this third kind of self which can be used, which can train and develop along the path of poti, along the path of enlightenment wisdom. This is the kind of self that can be used and trained for the elimination of tukkha, for the elimination of the self, for the realization of the fundamental reality of voidness. So these are the three kinds of self. We mention them so that you can separate them and distinguish between them so that you will not be confused. The first self is that of the, illu the illusion within the mind. The second is the reality that there is no such thing as a self or soul, atta or atman. The third self 
is that self which can be developed and trained to realize the ultimate state of voidness, the end of Tukha. Everything that we've talked about is about the mind. And so in a way we could call it psychology, the study of the mind. It would not be really wrong to call this psychology, but what has happened these days is what is commonly called psychology has been completely possessed by materialism. What is called psychology is always being used for material interest. It's being used in advertising, helping corporations make money, and to to win friends and influence people, and for reasons of sex and other materialistic endeavors. This is the state of what is normally called psychology. So we really don't want to call this psychology. So we'll add a word and call it Buddhist psychology or spiritual psychology to differentiate between the kind of psychology which is caught up in materialism and greed. So this is Buddhist psychology, the working and understanding of the truth of the one mind. The Buddha said that if someone understands the truth, that the mind is void, and then it is conditioned by defilement, and then becomes void again. The Buddha said if someone understands this, this transformation from void to defilement to void, if this is understood, then it is possible for that person, that mind, to practice mental development or what is commonly called meditation, or some people use the word vipassana meditation. But if one does not understand this truth of how the mind works, if one does not understand that it is the one mind that changes from void to defilement to void, if this is not understood, there can be no mental development, there can be no Chitta Pawana. That means it is impossible to meditate. If you do not grasp this truth, then what you are doing is not meditation. To meditate, one must understand this, this transformation of the mind. The mind is originally void. It becomes defiled. The defilement passes away and there is once again the state of void. We hope that you can understand this so that you will be able to meditate properly so that the jitta, the mind, will be developed correctly. So we, we can <coughs> summarize this all by if you're asked the question, who is who? You can answer it's just the same mind. It's all the same mind. Who is who? Is who? 
It's all the same mind. All these different functions and activities and shapes and colors of mind is all the same mind. The same mind can be developed and trained so that it, it stops attaching. It becomes free of attachment. And then that, that same mind is developed to the highest possible knowledge. This is what this is about. Developing and training the mind for the realization of the highest knowledge. The knowledge that, that brings about the elimination of Tukka. So if you're asked, who is who? The answer is, it's all the same mind. The same mind that will rea that can realize the highest truth. Who experiences Tukka? Or who has all these problems of Tukka? Who wants or needs to extinguish Tukka? Who studies Buddhism in order to extinguish Tukka? Who is practicing Dhamma? Who, can ex who is able to extinguish Tukka? Who experiences the taste of extinguishing Tukka, that is, Nibbana? The answer to all these questions is, it's all the same mind, the same mind which can change in all these different forms. So the most marvelous and amazing and fantastic thing in the entire universe is this marvelous and fantastic ability of the, the mind to know itself, to know its problems, and to want to overcome those problems. This one, one ability this fact of the mind is the most marvelous thing in the entire universe. And even further, it's most marvelous that this mind is able to control itself. This mind can master itself and train itself. It can develop itself and practice the Dhamma. This is incredibly marvelous that this, this mind is able to control itself, train itself, and develop itself. And an even higher level of marvelousness is that this mind is able to transform itself from a mind that has tukka to a mind that is free of tukka. It changes from an old life that is burdened by tukka to a new life that has no tukka at all. This is the supreme marvelousness of the thing we call the jitta. And it's always continually the same mind. In some other places they teach that there are many, many different minds. They have long lists and numbers attached to these lists of all the different minds. But we don't talk like that. We don't say that there are many different minds. We say that there is just one mind, the same mind. It's all the same mind.
So this is the ultimate secret of the thing that is called the single mind, the one mind. And we'll end today's talk with this secret. <laughs>